Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Adjacent Mets fans, welcome to this week's edition. For all you kids out there, Mets Adjacent Baseball Prospectus Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me after a week and a half-ish off is Jarrett Seidler. Jarrett, we've both been on vacation, but we are back to talk about Mets baseball. That's actually counting the uh, prospect episode we did. We have not recorded an episode of our own podcast this month. And, uh, what a what a month of Mets baseball it's been. We've missed so much. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think either of us have actually been watching a ton of Mets baseball. I've been watching some. You've been watching not much. I will uh, put on tonight's game against the Giants as we record. I haven't watched anything in the second half. I did watch a clip of P. Alonzo almost hitting it out of target field because you know that's a thing that I enjoy. Yes. When it was explained to me that that is what happened. I'm like, I need to see that on video. And it yes. was quite good. 98% hit probability, Jeffrey. Mm. It was a very windy hit. day, I assume. Yeah. Where, uh... so, so Twitter user Chicken Pop had found the mm. one ball of that exit velocity and launch angle that hadn't been hit out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was indeed a very windy day. It also turned out it was opening day, and StatCast has some known calibration issues, like really early in the season. Also, it has some known calibration issues on extremely hard hit or high hit balls, too. Yes. Oh, this is true. So these are all, and it was a few years ago when it was less good at mm-hmm. doing this, like it's ever improving. But, uh, yeah, so we're kind of thinking about doing some shorter and maybe slightly more frequent episodes, which we have already de facto been doing for a lot of the summer. Mostly because which, the Mets would keep doing stupid shit that we had to comment on. Right, but I think the schedule actually works a little bit better for us. Yeah. So if you have thoughts on that one way or the other, we would like to hear them, you know, maybe dropping to more of like 45 minutes twice a week as opposed to, you know, two hours, two and a half hours once a week. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that is that's, something that's we are in the media in a lot of cases so yeah right this episode's gonna be long because we have a million things to talk about we do. So, uh i do want to mention before we get started um rob McEwen, who was a friend of both of ours uh passed away earlier this week he was uh, he was i believe the longest tenured baseball prospectus employee continuously yes he was our director well, of operations which both kind of describes what he did and also in no way shape or form encompasses what he did just kind of the ben zobrist of baseball perspectives uh you know i i was pretty good friends with him uh we talked a lot about a large variety of things uh i am by far from the closest person to him at bp and uh you know, he had a lot of friends. He had a lot. There were a lot of people. I mean, that, you couldn't uh, not be Rob's friend was the thing. Yes. 
yes, he was very, uh, very gregarious online. Uh, a lot of, a lot of varied interests. Um, I, I talk sometimes about the industry square sheet league I'm in. He, he was in that league. He was, um, one of the most prolific square sheet players around. It was a format he loved. Uh, and he started out as a fantasy baseball writer at VP. So, yeah. yep. And um, kind of just started doing everything else. You know, he was responsible for many of the things you saw on Baseball Prospectus, many of which didn't have his name on them. Which, uh, I mean, really, the fact that the site is still up and running in all the various forms that it is, the testament to Rob's ability to troubleshoot constantly. Yeah, and uh, I know we had both just talked to him last week. I was actually... Uh, I think it was Monday, I was like, you know, because I had, uh, there was an issue that I was talking to him about last week and didn't get resolved, and I was like, that's a little bit weird, because he was usually very uh, very quick to get that kind of stuff resolved, and he also hadn't popped in to ask about any of the wide variety of things he tended to pop in on. Like, he was, he was not on our prospect team, but he tended to be somewhat active in prospect discussions, because he had a lot of thoughts on them, and sometimes they were interesting. Uh, one of our last conversations was uh, he had seen the he's on the email distribution list for the prospect team so he saw the midseason 50 and was like diving into my mentions and we thought he thought we had Kyle Tucker too low and like any other person at BP that was not a member of the prospect team that did that to me I would be kind of annoyed Yeah, but it was Rob so yeah we'll talk about Kyle Tucker yeah, and um, he would occasionally ask me about prospects that I hadn't heard of, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, for all for his various fantasy leagues or square sheet leagues or now or all kinds of that, he was very active in that, you know, all those communities. And uh, one of the prospects he asked me about years ago that turned out. To be a guy, he was the first person that tipped me off to Luis Rangifo. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was a big Luis uh, Rangifo supporter. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Angels infielder, if you don't know who that is, um, he had been following him since he was in the Seattle system a few years ago. He bounced around a few places and he was a Big fan of his, and uh, he will be uh, greatly missed uh, by all of us. Uh, probably by the time most of you hear this, there'll be something going up on the site, which I contributed to. Uh, Craig you know, also did the one good use of Twitter moments I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, and uh, this week. Ben Lindbergh had a very, uh, I would say, moving segment on Rob on Effectively Wild. So I would, uh, inc- and that was kind of aimed at. Uh, people who didn't know who he was because Ben worked very closely with him when Ben was the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, which predates both of our time at BP. Yeah. Um, both of us came in when Sam was there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would I would encourage you to do that. Um, several people pointed out that one of the most used phrases on Baseball Prospectus history is thanks to Rob McEwen for the research assistance because he was... Uh, I'll be honest, I the types of articles I run very rarely needed that kind of research assistance, so that wasn't me most of the time. But, I mean, he, uh, you know, he helped me out a few times. He did. I mean, like mostly... I also, 
I said this on Twitter, but it was my work related conversations with Rob generally amounted to, Hey, we're posting this prospect list tomorrow. And for some reason it's not publishing like DRA for this low minors picture on the stat pages. Kind of need it. And sure enough, 15 minutes later, Rob would have it for me. Probably cause he just would go and run it. And Mine I never, I never little... missed deadline. Mine were, I think a little bit more substantive because yeah. I, uh, I kind of de facto picked up a lot of job responsibilities before I picked up before I actually ever changed my title. Uh, So one of the things I picked up probably a year and a half ago was I started working more closely with the stats and research and development teams, which functionally means Rob and Harry and Judge too, uh, for the most part. So I talked to him a lot about you know ideas that we had for stuff you know well into the 2020s like we had ideas for things we wanted to do like years and years down the road and you know i uh yeah it's, it's just very sad it was you know very sudden and shocking to us uh, and uh yeah it's uh, very sad he'll be greatly missed i will greatly miss uh, his friendship and insight and i think that's also true for you know literally dozens and dozens of people in the baseball community i know that i'll just uh, to wrap this part up i will just say that you know being the the lead prospect writer at baseball prospectus and i think you probably feel this sometimes too as well in your role it's you're very much it can be kind of a slog in some ways um, you don't say. And I think we kind of forget just how, you know, like cool the the site is and the community we're a part of, like for you know, as sort of a job. And I think the one thing about Rob is Rob was always he never lost sight of that. Like to him, baseball perspectives was just this great thing that he got to be a part of and you know, I think going forward I'll try to try to carry that with me more. He had a certain sense of wonderment about how cool everything was that I think we could probably do a little more to capture as individuals. Not particularly cool right now, the 2019 Mets. That was a shitty segue. They've won the last four games. They have. They're on a four-game winning streak. They're going to be soft buyers. Yeah, or hold. Soft buyer hold, yeah. Um, where do you want to start? I guess Wheeler is probably the easiest transition from there because the one obvious trade piece that might have returned some significant return, although I suspect the return on Wheeler was always going to be lower than people thought. But since they're not going to retain any money when dumping these guys to get better players, the fact that Wheeler is making fuck all this year actually mattered. Right. And he's now on the DL with a shoulder impingement and may not pitch before the trade deadline. Oh, I'm sure he's just going to miss the minimum. It's not a big deal, Jarrett. The way that this was phrased, (laughs) the way that the discussions were phrased in the media, the unknown nature of how many starts he was going to miss, the MRI being, quote, pretty much clean (laughs) as opposed to clean, this feels like they're downplaying the severity of the injury, having watched the Mets for... come on. Yeah. No, never. Right. That this is this is the language that you hear before there's another shoe to drop. So we're gonna get a lot of Walker Lockett, is what you're saying. 
we were gonna get a lot of well, <laughs> we were gonna get a lot of Walker Lockett anyway, right? I I do want to briefly touch on this because both uh, Corey Oswalt and Harold Gonzalez would have been on turn for Saturday's start. But we're just, this is just the thing that's happening. Like, Walker Lockett's going to be the Jeffrey, guy. They think Walker Lockett's good. I can't find a single source to that has seen him in 2019 to... 2018? Or... I, I haven't gone really back that far, to be honest, um, to confirm that. And I've also, you know... I'm and you've been trying. You've I been try- been. I, can, I, can, I can say that you have been trying. I have. Is, I was, because uh, I'm... I'm my own personal curiosity. I said this on Twitter today. Like, I think Harold Gonzalez is a better, what do you want to call it? Better prospect in so much as either of those dudes are prospects at this point. Um, I mean, that's not a great thing for the Mets. Like, how many how many pitchers in the system would you take right now over Harold Gonzalez? I mean, Kay and Peterson are the obvious upper minors ones. The prep arms... Yeah, Alan Wolf, Woods Richardson, Junior Santos, probably. Okay, who's the next one? Walker Lockett. Ah, it's Tony DeBrell. I mean, mm, yeah, we're into the maybe. Yeah, and like I got Gonzalez as a soft four, as I always have for the last couple of years. Yeah, and I mean they're probably gonna let him walk as a minor league free agent. He made like yeah. he he did the spot start and triple A send him back down thing, so they're not particularly interested in exploring that further, clearly. Um right. and it's just like, okay. Yeah, you know, regardless, they're gonna have to replace at least Wheeler and probably Vargas's innings going into next season. He, he's gonna show up in two thousand twenty one yeah. as the bulk the bulk guy behind Ryan Stanek on the Rays, right? That seems like a faith, uh, a fair bet, yeah. Yeah. Like, but that's... And they just don't... Yeah, they just don't see it, I guess, right? Sure. That's, that's what it is. Uh, and again, it's not great. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's whatever, but... But there's some deception there, and there's you know a few average pitches, and that's more than Walker Lockett's got yeah. going for. Well, Walker Lockett does have some deception. He's got yeah. It's it's just it's odd. Uh, it's it's odd. That's, yeah, that's the right word for it. There. But Walker Lockett is the is the shiny new toy in this scenario, and was acquired by this front office, so. Well, I mean, they just DFA'd Wilmer Font and traded him for cash. They after sure did. Moving. They moved a six-figure IFA for him that it looked good and extended, or yep. excuse me, instructs. Yep. And then they DFA'd him, you know, 30 innings that were exactly like the rest of his career. Yep. What changed? Yeah, I mean, yes. and they. the funny thing is they did it after the All-Star break, so it's not like they were doing it for a fresh arm. Right. Uh, they hit it for Chris Mazza, who's like, he's Chris Wilmer Mazza. Font. Yeah. He throws more strikes. He's Wilmer Font. He throws more strikes. His fastball's not as good. Mm-hmm. And they... But the point is that because of 
You know, we've now seen that they're willing to, with the Keon Broxton move and with the Wilmer Font move, uh-huh. they're willing to say, based on what is frankly a pretty short track record, if they just get upset at one of these guys, it doesn't matter if they have an asset into them. They'll just they'll just jettison them. Like say Travis Darno. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna pivot there. I had some I had some barstool assholes that were upset at me. So I tweeted when I was I actually wasn't sitting down to watch the game. I was actually getting out of my car at the grocery store. But this mm. was on this was I was listening to WCBS uh, for the radio call of that game. Um, just because it, it was on or no, they're on six sixty now, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, wherever they are, I had the radio call the Yankees game on when I was pulling into the grocery store, and they started reading off the lineup, and it's Travis Darno hitting leadoff. So I made a point how, wow, Travis Darno has been one of the best backup catchers in baseball since he's been on the Rays, mm-hmm. and then he proceeded to hit three home runs in that game, which he I did. did not expect. Sure. But I think people thought I was trying to dunk on the Mets after he had hit the three home runs and like didn't look at the time of the tweet. Sure. And I apparently made some people that really like Brody Van Wagenen pretty mad. I mean, I was having a conversation with a scout that day about the litany of mistakes the Mets have made with process mistakes the Mets have made with Travis Darno over the last six months. Right. Like, it, if at any point in time they had made the opposite decision, it would have probably worked out better for them. Right. And the fact that the two teams that were immediately after Travis Darno were the Dodgers and the Rays. Yeah. That, that should be a red flag in and of itself, because those are not teams that are prone to amateurish rookie mistakes. You know, and the Dodgers didn't couldn't find room for him on the roster, so yeah. they dealt him off to the Rays, and he's in a weird timeshare with Mike Zanino, which <laughs> he's kind of weirdly similar to anyway yeah. at this point in their careers. Sure. So, Darnell's got more hit tools and Eno's got more arm, yeah. but yeah, like, and the Mets catching situation is bad. Tomas Nino can't hit folks. Maybe he gets there eventually, maybe, but it's not going to be today. And, you know, Wilson Ramos is basically the player we thought he is, but you know, there's pretty much a straight-up pitching staff revolt on Wilson Ramos, and yeah. they're not hiding it very well either. No, they're not so much. And that was always, like, a weird downside risk of that signing. We were not fantastically against the Wilson Ramos signing. You know, if you go back, my attitude on the Wilson Ramos signing is you should have signed Yasmani Grandal. But this is probably better than shipping out your entire farm for JT Real Hotel. And I would still say that's correct. And it also came out during the All-Star break that the Mets were much closer to a deal with Grandal than was yeah. previously thought. And that came straight from Grandal. Mm-hmm. Well, Grandal thought they were closer to a deal at least. Right. Grandal thought they were close to a deal, and then he turned around, and the next, and they had already signed Ramos. Like by the time, and I mean, this was always so. If you look at the, you know, the downside risk, the downside risk was Ramos. The defense was trending 
downwards as it was and they're given his health issues and pre-existing defensive issues there's some collapse risks in the defensive skill set which I think we're seeing to a certain extent right you know, other than that at the plate he's more or less been Wilson Ramos he's um, basically on his career line he's traded some power for some locks yeah. which again is common for players that are in their 30s but they signed Wilson Ramos on an idea that he was 2018 Wilson Ramos while basically ignoring the rest of his career. And they sold people that he was 2018 Wilson Ramos. And instead, he's basically the same player he's been his entire career, which is kind of a crappy defensive catcher that pitchers don't like working with by and large. And a decent hitter, but probably not so good that he's worth all of the rest of the crap. And his framing is trending down. Uh, he's got bad knees, so his mobility is completely shot. I mean, he just, like, drops pitches in the strike zone constantly. Right, so he, like, he, he like, boxes, like, basic, not even, like, framing issues. He, like, boxes basic pitches. Yeah, he doesn't have great hands. Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of, we, we talk about ha- traditionally catchers in the mm-hmm. scouting sense end up being scouted on things that are visually obvious, which tends to be arm and ability to block the ball behind the plate right. and their hands, you know, just kind of get ignored. Uh, but we're finding out that by far the most important thing they do is their hands, which actually was conventional baseball wisdom for a number of years before the Saber 1.0 crowd tried to knock that out. And this is always a story I like to tell about being careful about how much you think you know about baseball at any given time. Mm-hmm. Because I spent 15 years reading all of the leading sabermetric people say that there is no value to catcher defense other than the arm as long as they can physically sit behind the plate. Just start Ellen Rosario. Right. Or Ryan you know, Dumit. Ryan Dumit, who turned out to be like the worst defensive catcher of all time and was costing his team like five wins a season defensively, was the cause celebre of the baseball sabermetric world for most of his career. Uh, so you got to be careful, but and and this is something I talk about a lot with infield defense right now. I suspect the idea that the Mets are really bad at infield defense is correct. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what the magnitude of the problem is because I don't think any of the public defensive metrics are actually measuring infield defense very well right now for various technical reasons that we really don't have to get into right now. I'm really but, just Jeff McNeil casually why does anyone throw him a first pitch anywhere near the zone ever (laughs) he's hitting 350 jared he is yeah i mean throw him first pitch middle wall yeah and he just put it in the yeah casually flicked everything up (sighs) yeah anyway but i i the Mets could really, you know, Travis Darno would be the best catcher in the Mets right now. Yeah. And they just really messed that situation up. Because, again, Travis Darno 
is crappy at the obvious visual things and very good at the hidden things. And they're paying all of his salary right now except the prorated minimum. Right, and he's not making that much. Really, right, doesn't yeah. matter. I mean, it does to the Mets. Right. The problem is you add up. You're paying a Danny Hitch of a real. What's going to end up being like five million dollars to be the twenty fifth man. You know, you're paying Travis Darno three million dollars to play for another team, and you just add these up and add these up and add these. The problem isn't Robinson Cano's salary, folks. The problem is that a they don't spend any money, and especially they're unwilling to commit to term. And B, where they do spend money, it's just like frivolous and stupid. You know, three and thirty for Jerry's familiar because they like this clubhouse presence. But like, when you spend like a bunch of weird money on these down roster spots for players that frankly aren't very good. Or worse, you spend them on good players and then rage cut them. <laughs> Let's be clear here. Travis Darnot was cut because he ran into a bad out on a Saturday night game. That a Fox a, game, too. In a fairly big spot, and they got really angry about it. And he also made some bad throws in that game. He wasn't cut because they came to a vastly different conclusion to his skills. Than they had three weeks ago? Three weeks into the season. That's not how this happened. And to to get Travis Darno in that spot, they moved heaven and earth. They forced Devin Mesoraco into retirement. They traded Kevin Pulecki for the aforementioned Walker Lockett. They failed to bring in any kind of... Re- because they forced Mesoraco into retirement and then cut Darno. they had no option than to rush Nito back to the big leagues as the backup catcher, which is not what you want for his development, frankly. He's not playing enough, and he's getting overmatched by major league pitching, both of which were very obvious things that were going to happen. So... Back back to Wheeler for a moment. Sure. Do you think Wheeler has any trade value, remembering that there's no August trade deadline now? Um, I mean, it really depends on if he gets back on the mound between now and July 31st, which is probably around 50-50. Um, I mean, you're not getting a, a serious prospect for him at this point because of the you know, the unknown. Maybe you get the Andrew Kashner two dudes you like in the DSL, but the Mets never make that trade. Right, they only make it the other way. Yeah. So Zach Brazilier of the New York Post on Twitter today uh made a point which I saw a lot of people disagreed with that if the Mets can't get a significant return for Wheeler, they should just hold or be soft buyers because Frazier's going to be a salary dump. Vargas is going to be a salary dump. And they have nothing else to say. You know, Danny Hatcheria, if they make it, it's going to be a salary dump. I don't even think they can dump that salary. Probably not. And they have little to nothing else to trade to get a return on except for Syndergaard. And... You know, this is a good seg into Noah Syndergaard trade talk. 
I don't think you do that at the deadline. I think you do that in the offseason, and I do think they'll do it. So your return, if you get a team that really wants him, is better at the deadline, right? Yeah, maybe. But is anybody going to want Noah Syndergaard right now that much? Oh, sure. You know, Andy Martino of Mets blog reported that the Mets had heat, including Omar Minaya at Davey Garcia's. Oh, can we talk about this? I forgot start, to put this on the agenda, but God, do start, I want to talk about this. Start in Scranton-Wilkes-Barre. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I was at a Davey Garcia start. The Mets had coverage at that start. Like, so 12 other teams, yes. by the way. Not like the Mets don't see trend. Or Scranton-Wilkes-Barre. I mean, that's sure. an hour... 20 from the city, probably. Yeah. I figure it. Omar lives in Jersey, right? So it's probably less than that for him. Like, and, and yeah, of course they are, because you know what? The Yankees are a plausible team, and Davey Garcia is a plausible prospect for that trade. So, of course, they're covering him. They're also covering, I guarantee you, they've got heat on, like, Kyle Tucker right now, too. I actually don't know that for sure, because, you know. <laughs> But I strongly suspect they do, and I strongly suspect they've got heat on 900 guys in the Padres system. And yeah, but but everybody does. Amateur scouts right now have nothing to do. Do you know what <laughs> amateur scouts become in July? I mean, like they I become, see them in short season for the most part. But yes, yeah. yes, they become special assignment pro scouts. This is what, uh, you know, the Mets might be sellers, and they there's a chance that they're going to be selling a big piece. Of course they have heat on major prospects on teams that are interested in Noah Syndergaard. They'd be idiots if they didn't. So why did they make a point of trying to get that out there in the press, Jared? <sighs> we know why. Of course we know why. It's an impressive we tried, I right. have to say. Right. It's like... This guy's getting some hype in the New York media. Yep. So we're going to do like this weird reverse psychology where we're pretending we're interested in him specifically. <sighs> yeah, yeah. And the guys they send for these kinds of special assignments are Omar Minaya and Terry Cole. Yeah. <laughs> I actually haven't seen Terry yet this year, but I you have. Him. I right? have. Oh, yeah. Have. Yeah, you have. Uh, right, and Terry you know, the, Terry tends to do like the he's Terry in the, tends to do internal check. He has the internal right before they get promoted check that Depot used to do. Yeah. So there's a discussion: should they trade Noah Syndergaard? Should they trade Noah Syndergaard right now? Because yeah. those are kind of two tracks. They're not going to get a huge return for Noah Center. They're going, yeah, nice. I think David Garcia is the type of lead guy they would get for Noah Syndergaard. I don't think it's going to specifically be David Garcia because I cannot see this ownership group signing off on a deal that ships Noah Syndergaard across town. Right. I think they will cripple the return to not have to do that. They are leaking very heavily that they will absolutely trade to the Yankees if it's the best deal, though, Jarrett. Yes, I'm sure they are. I The group of teams that have always been reported to be interested in Noah Syndergaard would give me great pause. Oh, because it's uh, Houston, San Diego, and Tampa? 
and New York and the oh, yeah, Yankees. Yeah. It's all the te- if you notice, it's all the teams that like to get pitchers and fix them. Mm. That would give me pause. I don't think it's going to give them pause. No, of course not. My confidence in their ability to make a well-constructed, well-thought-out Noah Syndergaard trade is low at best. Well, they're going to prioritize... The problem is they're going to prioritize Major League Ready or close to Major League Ready pieces. Right. Because they don't see this as a as a rebuild, even if you're, you know, upon trading Noah Syndergaard, you have to replace Noah Syndergaard, Zach Wheeler, and Jason Vargas's innings. Right. So you're going to, and Anthony K can only pitch like 150 of those. Yeah. So you're going to, and they're probably going to get David Peterson up for some of that, but there isn't a lot there right now. So you're going to target Kyle Tucker in the Astros system as opposed to other guys and you might target JB Buscakis as opposed to other guys. And you're going to, if you're trading with the Yankees, you know, David Garcia is who you should be going after. Right. Yeah. yeah. The Yankees anyway, but you know, Noah Syndergaard for Davey Garcia and Clint Fraser. Are you doing that deal? Uh, that's the kind of deal you're, that's, that's a best case type return right now. Right. Yeah. Man, I like Davey Garcia, but... I like both of those guys a lot. I do, too. What what percentile outcome for Davey Garcia is Noah Syndergaard? Noah Syndergaard right now, or Noah Syndergaard when he wins the AL Cy Young (laughs) in 2020? I mean, the entire Noah Syndergaard experience so far, let's say. Okay, I'll I'll make this more specific. Let's go to... Baseball perspective. Okay, so what role grade is Noah Syndergaard right now? Seven? I have no idea. Because that's kind of, you know, it's probably a seven. It's a soft seven. You know, I'm eventually going to file a report with David Garcia's seven, which means functionally I think Noah Syndergaard is David Garcia's 75th percentile outcome. It's probably a little higher than that. So let's say 80th. But Noah Syndergaard's 75th percentile outcome for pure is that he start that he's you know has the rest of Max Scherzer's career because Max Scherzer was the pitcher too for a while. No, Syndergaard has only been worth 20 wins above replacement. Right. Like, what's the odds that Debbie Garcia actually gets to that? 20 percent, probably. Yeah, that might even be high. I like I, I I like him a lot. Yeah. Fair but I mean, he's also like a five foot nine pitcher. Right. Like, there's a bunch of risks. He might just be a good reliever. Yeah. It's a difficult... I I will say I started shopping for opinions a lot on him because I didn't know what to do with him on the midseason list. I didn't know what to do with him just in general for a write-up. And I still haven't filed the write-up. I, I know what I'm filing the write-up at now as I just haven't filed it yet. Um... The absolute consensus of every single person I talked to, BP internal people, team people, other writers, was the stuff. Yeah. Like, that was... We got feedback that we were too low on him 
on the midseason list. So, but that being said, there were good reasons why we were the command profile is not all the way there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, his he's not the hundred pitch guy right now, and he may never be. And that you know you start looking at starters with that that frame and that height and there ain't a lot of them which doesn't mean that he can't be but there's kind of this he has four pitches it's not like yeah there's a rebuttable presumption that guys of that size end up in the bullpen Uh and that's starting to change with like these kind of varied roles um I think I made this comp to you. Like, the high side comp here, it's not Noah Syndergaard, it's Walker Bueller. Mm. Like, that's what he could be. Walker Bueller already pulls arm out, too. So there's... there's, But, like, just in terms of the stuff, you know, know, in terms of the stuff, the delivery, I saw Walker Bueller. Uh Walker Bueller is six inches taller than him. And Walker Bueller's not a huge guy either. Walker Bueller's thin more than short, though. Yeah. You know. But that's, you know, that's kind of... And, uh, you know, Nick Stolini interviewed him, and his, you know, he thought the listed height and weight were pretty much accurate. He's not like a listed 5'7", actually 5'4", guy, either. Mm. Which is good. But it's still, you know... It's tough. There's guy, and it's not just he's actually listed five nine. Excuse me. So, um, you know, Nick thought that the five nine one sixty five was about right. But how many five foot nine pitchers are there in the majors that are starting twenty five games a season? There's Marcus Stroman. Yep. But there's a reason we always talk about Marcus Stroman because he's basically the only one. Mm-hmm. So. I would probably do that trade in part because I don't trust the Mets to make a better <laughs> trade. Uh, the Mets. Right. I, I have grave fears that this is like... Austin Hedges and... Austin Hedges and Joey Lucchese. Like Lauer or something. Yeah. It's Lucchese. Logan right? Allen, one of those Logan Lucchese, Allen. yes. Right. right. And they just like trade for like upper level guys that they know that like they trade for a bunch Cal of... Quantrill. Yeah, they trade for a bunch of fives, basically. Mm-hmm. And some of, those, some of the guys you mentioned are better than fives. But it's like, they have this weird idea of building a team like where you fill spots instead of just getting good players, and they might see this as a chance to like turn one spot into four spots. Yeah. Which is how you end up making bad deals and doing stuff like trading real prospects for Keon Broxton and Wilmer Font and then DFAing them right after. Yeah. We have a bunch more stuff to discuss, so we should uh, continue on. We haven't talked since the Home Run Derby. We have not. I only saw the finals because I was driving back from Cleveland. Yeah, that was uh, was pretty impressive, uh, both on Pete Alonso's part and Vladimir Guerrero's part. I think between the Home Run Derby and the length he hit the ball the other day, like kind of the secret on the Pete Alonso overall power is now out nationally. Okay, sure. I didn't know that it wasn't before, but I think in the broader national baseball sure, context, sure, sure. like this is like because nobody watches the Mets, right? 
Mets are just a punchline. Mm. I, I think before this, probably the most press he had gotten was for that weird beef with Chris Paddock. Sure. The Mets couldn't get Paddock for Syndergaard. Right? They probably could not now. Okay. They might try. That's like a guy that they would like ask and like piss off the other team about. Yeah, they never do that. Yeah, they actually used to be infamous for doing that. Yeah. I don't know if they still are. Uh, anyhow, so, so Alonso hit a lot of home runs and won the home run derby. There were people upset because he had hit as many as Vlad, because Vlad had hit way more in the previous rounds. I really liked the format that they had. Say, does anyone know how a bracket works? Like, you fill out March Madness things in your office pool every year. It's the same principle. Alonso also hit second in all of his matchups and right, was not right. using a sure. allotment of time. Mm-hmm. It, hey, you know, I said this before the home run derby. There were people upset that they invited Vlad, who's basically been a league average hitter over 250 at bats, which I'm a little surprised about, but sometimes these things take time. He's like 20, and there's some evidence he's kind of hit into a little bit of bad luck. And. Adjusting to life in the major leagues is not the easiest, right? It's still a very good batting practice. Right. It's like the best batting practice you're ever going to see, which is what you want if you're trying to create a young star in the home run derby. Cano just looked terrible against Bumgarner's cutter, um, which is not a great matchup for him. But How are you that far behind me? I think I got caught. I think I like accidentally skipped backwards at yeah. some point. It's yeah. already going to the bottom of the second, so. Right. I didn't want to pause the podcast to skip back ahead. And I'm out of reach of my remote. Uh, and, you know, Alonzo also takes a fantastic batting practice. Yeah. We both. Now, that was even when he was in Brooklyn and yeah. he had this weird setup, he always took a great batting practice. You know, it was a weird setup, but the pitches were slow enough that he would just absolutely mash them to right center field. And once he got rid of the weird setup, all of a sudden, that was no longer an issue. I mean, at Futures last year, he was just smashing balls onto the concourse at Nets Park. Right. We were actually talking about this offline a little bit earlier today. Um, I was looking back at some of my Alonzo material, and it was clear from what I was writing that I didn't really believe in the spots and the grades that we were giving him at the time. I mean, that was true in 2018 as well, I feel like. So. Right. It, it was true back to probably the whenever he got promoted to the Eastern League and set at the end of 17, mm-hmm. uh, which was – we've kind of had some internal discussions about that. Like, is that – do we actually want people that believe in a prospect more writing their stuff? Uh, it's not a gear. You know, I argued for Alonzo's inclusion on the 2018-101. I argued for Alonzo's inclusion in the 2018 midseason list, and I openly said I would have had him in the top 20 in last year's 101 if it was solely up to me, but it's not. But I also wrote him at those times, like, he actually was there. Like, I wrote his call-up article, like, this was, like, the emergence of a guaranteed superstar, basically, right after we named him the 40th best prospect in baseball, which is not a guaranteed superstar. So, I... I saw... I don't know what he is right now. Like, is he... A six? Is he a seven? Do we have the ability to answer that question yet? 
I don't think we do necessarily. Um, Does it even matter? I don't. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it doesn't. Right. Like, it it matters. This is where I'm pivoting to. There's an i. There's been ideas raised. Um, some more seriously. No, than others. no, that come on. You're not. You're not doing this on my show. Come on. Come and I on. Think We're stupid, not doing but, worst of Mets Twitter. Right, but the, I'm pivoting this into Dom Smith. Yeah, fine. Is there still an argument that the Mets, that Dom Smith should be the Mets' first baseman moving forward? I can think of a couple people that would make it. I am not one of them. Right, I I agree with you, and I think I knew that you were. I know he had that. a whatever a good game off the bench yesterday, but he's also like three for his last thirty before that. So you wanted to talk about Dom Smith? I was trying to pivot to Dom Smith. Well, I said we'd give it another seventy-five plate appearances or whatever. <laughs> we're there. We are there. Um, and look, I I had a chat question about him last week, um, and I'm gonna mostly tread over the same ground here. Um, I think he's a better major leaguer than he's been the last two years, which I don't think is necessarily a high bar to get over. Um, I think the changes in baseballs help his profile, which I guess would not be a surprise, really. Um, you know, given that particular skill set, he seems like a guy that would be able to take advantage of that. And it's not, you know, it's plus raw power, good bat control, uh, he seems to have improved his knowledge of the zone. I just, you know, I don't know what this looks like at the end of the year, and functionally, it doesn't really matter because he's not as good as Pete Alonso, and he shouldn't be playing left field. Yeah. And he's the so, five, is he a five now? I, he might be. So for the last two seasons, yeah. combined, right. it's just 100, it's 322 plate appearances, 137 games. He's 263, 24, 80. I wouldn't be shocked if that's pretty close to a true talent level. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. He's a little bit better than that. It's also like almost two different players you're combining too, so I don't know how predictive that is going forward. Right. I I don't... Listen, if he's as good of a hitter as he's been in 2019, it's actually probably worth sticking him in left field and just saying our defense is going to be absolutely terrible. We'll find him a platoon partner because it's not like the hardest thing in the world to find like a right-handed hitting corner outfielder that plays good defense and matches lefties. Like right. that's actually a pretty easily available profile, which is one of the reasons that trading for so much for JD Davis was a little weird and trading for camp Oxton was weird. Like that dude's out there. It almost might be worth that. Right. But I don't know if he's that good. Yeah, I mean the Mets certainly can spend the rest of the season finding out because right. they're not going anywhere. They also don't seem like super inclined to do that. Like right. I mean, they're functionally hard platooning him at this point with JD Davis. Um, right, but JD Davis actually isn't the right guy to yeah stick in that spot. Like I don't know exactly who is the right guy, but it, that guy's actually not that hard to find. Sure. Uh, so I, I just I don't know what so the 75 plate appearances later we're still not really sure what's going on here which is a little weird again I like Dom Smith a lot I would like for Dom Smith to succeed I would like for Dom Smith to succeed as a Met 
this is a hard situation for him. Mm-hmm. He's terrible in left field, and he's never not going to be terrible in left field. It's not for lack of trying. It's lack for it's for lack of foot speed and ability to read fly balls, and that's not going to change for him. Fly ball reading might get a little bit better, but he's not going to get fast enough to be a functional outfielder. It's just not going to happen. And it's like, what else can you do? Uh, you know, Galaxy Brain Pete Alonso at third base is not an option. Stop reading <laughs> Mets Twitter. <laughs> that was in my mentions. I know though. it was. You sent it to me. Right. Like, and, like this outfield is really bad right now. I just saw Jeff McNeil try to run down a ball in triples alley and it did not go great. Excuse me, that's Mets DRS leader (laughs) right fielder Jeff McNeil. I know. I think he's actually been fine in the outfield since like May 1st or whatever. But yeah. That's always going to be a a tough right field for him to play. So the interesting thing about Jeff McNeil is he like has this reputation as like a gritty instinctual player and that's true when he's within the batter's box, but he makes some really weird fielding and base running blunders. There is some, there is a strain of Daniel Murphy there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's uh, yeah, I, I think it stops at a specific point of things I've heard have been true. Yeah. Thank God. But <sighs> you know, Conforto in center is again, He's below average, but if you're going to be playing a center fielder next to Dom Smith, it needs to be somebody who can go get the ball, and that's not Conforto in center. McNeil's an infielder playing the outfield, and Dom Smith's a first baseman playing the outfield, and J.D. Davis is functionally a first baseman playing the outfield. Maybe they should have just signed Lorenzo Cain, who I've been informed by my MLB at bat notifications just wrapped another home run. So a weird thing, if we go back to like Brody's introduction... Yes. Well, he said we were going to get better, more athletic, speed, defense, yeah. yada, yada, yada. He spent a lot of time talking about defense those first couple of months. He did. I don't, know like, the... I don't <laughs> even know if Sandy would have run this kind of defense. Yeah. Sandy, Sandy loved punting defense, man. Yeah. It's, it's uh, not great. Yeah. And again, I think if there's a long-term center field solution within the current Mets organization, it's Ahmed Rosario. Sure. It, there might just not be one within the organization, which if you're looking for a center fielder this offseason and free agency, you basically have one option. Mm. It's a Met killer. It's a guy you might want to get on the Mets to stop him from being somewhere else. Marcel Ozuna is basically mm. your big option. There. He's not a and, great center fielder either. No, he hasn't played center field with any regularity since 2015. Yeah. I mean, the cards are playing Harrison Bader. I know Harrison Bader is also a DRS darling now and is improved in center, but. You know, Here, here's the MLB trade rumors list of free agent <laughs> center fielders. Ah, we're already doing this and it's only July. All right, let's go. Peter Borges. Yeah. Garrett Dyson. Yeah. Billy Hamilton mutual option. Hmm. Austin Jackson. Wow. John Jay. Yeah, it's very Mets. Adam Jones. Might be Mets Lom- this time. Lomba Garris called option. Not getting picked up. 
Starling Marte club option that is getting picked up. Yeah. Leonis Martin, who just signed to play in Japan. Mm-hmm. Cameron Maven. Yeah. Chris Owings. That's it. Not a great list. No. Um, Jason Hayward is not listed as a center fielder, has an opt-out. There is no way on God's green earth that Jason Hayward is opting out of that contract. What does he have left on that deal? Uh, four years, $86 million. I remember it was four or five, but yeah. It's four and 86. Uh, he is hitting 275, 357, 470, which is his best season in As like a five cop, years, yeah. six years maybe. And he will be 30. He is not beating four and 84 in this market. He would have to hit 400 in the second half. And even then. All right. Um, Yasiel Puig would be an option. I have a feeling that Yasiel Puig is also not the Mets kind of player. Right. And after that, you know, all of the other decent corner guy, you know, J.D. Martinez has an opt-out that he'll probably execute. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Marcelo Zuno, who has some experience in center. There's Nicholas Castellanos, who the Mets love. Yeah. But I a corner outfielder. Right. Yeah. And after that, there's just like, you know... Hunter Pence, Derek Dietrich. It's going to be rough going here. Yeah, as it usually is with the Mets in all aspects of Mets. But for now, we'll take a break. We come back. We will talk about our respective vacations that weren't really vacations. Some of my vacation was actually a vacation. And answer your correspondence. Welcome back. Now it's time for the second slash third half of the show. Before we do that, we do housekeeping. This is for all you kids out there. Episode 174, for all you kids out there, is a Mets-adjacent Baseball Prospectus podcast. Find us on the internet at BaseballProspectus.com. podcast is on iTunes. Just search for For All You Kids Out There and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. If you want to get in contact with the show, we're on Twitter at For All You Kids. Jarrett's on Twitter at J.A. Seidler. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. The Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash For All You Kids out there. You can email the show at allyoukids at baseballperspectus.com. It turns out we are actually both going to Saber Seminar. We are both going to Saber Seminar, yes. I believe tickets are sold out. I don't know that for sure, but I believe tickets are sold out. Yeah. I, uh... But if you are at Saber Seminar, I will be... Doing my usual Saturday evening cocktail-ish jaunt around Cambridge and the surrounding area. Or if you're just in Boston. We're going to try and do better than last year's, although I don't know if we actually had any listeners around last year's. Last year's was not planned particularly well. Yes, I will do a better job planning this year. Um, yeah, I, I may take a stronger hand in the planning. Sure, of this, whatever. Uh, I'm not going to complain. This, this venture? Uh, I don't, it's in the past... Whenever we've actually, we tend to end up at Eastern Standard at some point anyway. Right. So my question is, why don't we just go to Eastern Standard? Because it's usually very crowded, especially with the, I mean, it might be okay because it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an earlier yeah. Red Sox game, yeah. Right, but it's like, you know, we'll have a big enough party where we can get a table, like, and we'll be ordering enough stuff that they won't kick us out for a while. Sure, sure. I, 
yeah, there's, another last, good, there's another good place not too far from Fenway. I think it's called Blackbird. It's not bad either. Last year we ended up trudging around Cambridge to a bunch of weird fucking places. We did. Yeah. Where did we even end up? I don't even remember. I, I think when I dipped out, we were at like the fancy place after the barcade. Yeah, then that kind of broke up pretty quickly after that. Yeah. Because yeah. Yasmin spilled a drink on somebody who probably would want to remain nameless. <laughs> Uh, yeah, kind of yeah. went down. Yeah, I, I can't be held responsible for what happens when I'm not there. Yeah, everybody, everybody just kind of, yeah, it was kind of, that was, that was a weird place, too. Yeah. We should have just stayed at the Barcade. Yeah, Barcade was a bit of a crowded. Yeah, but it had, NJ, it had NBA it Jam. Did, it did have NBA Jam, yes. <laughs> I, I would have been perfectly happy just, like, <laughs> blowing 20 bucks playing NBA Jam. Yeah. So if if you are in the Boston area, uh, and you know we'll be around uh, pretty much all weekend, but we will probably have some dinner and or drinks on Saturday. And also, I believe the Fangraphs meetup is at Meat Hall on Friday. Yep, can, usual time, usual place. Yes, I believe they posted the details of that today. I think I saw that on Twitter. Yeah, it's there. Yes. So. Um, our midseason fifty went up last week. We haven't podcasted since then, so you can check out that in the uh, uh, additional supplemental content, which includes a podcast that is in this feed. So, do, do you have any rankings you feel particularly weird about? I mean, I already wrote about Ryan Mountcastle uh, for right. the ten pack at the end of the week. Um, man, we might have been low on Gavin Lux. Who's <laughs> currently yeah. like thirty four for sixty in AAA or whatever it is. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I you saw know. I saw him at Futures, and again, it's especially for hitters in a one game look, you don't know what you're gonna get. And it, he was like one of those guys that was good, but not like standout good. Yeah, we uh, you know, hey, Kevin advocated him for for him to be a couple spots higher, so he he looks like he's gonna win that one. Yeah, and I you know I don't. We talked about this on that podcast, but there was, like, very little difference between, like, 6 and, like, 12 or 13 on that. Sure. You know, if, if you like him more than Carter Kibum or Bo Bichette, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. That was that was kind of a fuzzy... That was, like, a fuzzy area of, like, the soft 7s, basically. Mm-hmm. Was kind of, like, 6 to, like... 20 something on that list probably 6 to 25 would you 7 Ian Anderson Ian Anderson might be the last uh, one but... Ian Anderson's borderline but right so I mean Dyke I'm gonna 7 Davey you know Patino's you know Wilson 7 Patino I think it's 7 Pearson mm. yeah man Nate Pearson I guess we're talking about the Futures game now yeah I mean whew. it was interesting it was a stark contrast from uh last year which was very dinger dominated this was very pitcher dominated but man i mean nate pearson as i said in my futures game recap is basically built in a lab to pitch in a one game showcase or one inning showcase which might mean he's a reliever (laughs) it's very well right but man he threw that so he threw though as the 102 boring in on the hands to locks for the strikeout and i forget who he threw the the last slider to that inning 
it functionally doesn't matter because nobody was hitting it. And right. I just turned to Craig and went, well, that's 8-8 eight, eight right there. <laughs> yeah, and you like, don't know if it's going to be 8-8. Eight, eight. Yeah, I know, but it's... it's that's a fastball eight slider. Yeah, and there's a curve too that's not useless. Um, I've gotten reports that both the curve and the change have shown up as average in, mm-hmm. some, in some of his starts. So, so the key here is health. Yes, and he is on a regular pitching schedule the rest of the year. None of this, no more of this five and two right. alternating. They decided, yeah, inside to give him a little vacation to heal from a groin injury and that kind of. You know, he's been absurdly dominant in the minors. Yeah. Absurdly I mean, dominant. I don't know how anybody hits those two pitches, so. Right. Uh, but he has, you know, he has a severe medical red flag on his elbow. Right, yeah. Which is pretty well known. And he's had a lot of, like, weird nicks over the course of his career, which we talked about this more directly on the podcast itself, on that podcast itself. But he has a grand total of 73 actual professional innings so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in over a season of baseball. Yeah, I mean, it's not what you want, but... You know, it pops up to 94 if you include the AFL. Sure. Uh, he didn't even pitch that much in JUCO. Uh, I think we'll have a better idea of this. And before he transferred to JUCO, he was a reliever in his one season of NCAA baseball. Yeah, yeah. we'll have a better idea of this in a few months, I think, which is... Yeah, and the idea might be that he's a top-ten prospect at that point. Right. Like that's, that's within the scope here. You know, another... What's there? Seven weeks left in the minor league schedule? Yeah, thereabouts. So he could get like 45 good innings and 50 good innings, and that's not unreasonable. He's probably not stretched out quite enough to do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, another like 10 good starts, and, you know, maybe pitches in the NFL again. He could also be in the majors a lot quicker than people think. Yeah, like the he Jays could, he aren't could be gonna, the, This is the Blue Jays, man. He could be in the majors next May. Sure. Who else uh, impressed you at the Futures game as uh, I was I, off doing something else? Although I was actually back by then. We'll I, I would that. say it's sort of like, so there's like the relative to expectations thing. Like Joe Adele was extremely Joe Adele. Right. Um, I, he hit one in BP at least as far as anybody in the Futures game hit it. Or sorry, in the Homer and Derby hit it the next night. And he yeah. was selling out for it. And it was good. Uh, and that part plays pretty big, and the wind was blowing in during BP, so it was hard to really, like, consistently park him. And the guys that did it the most were Adele, uh, Wander Franco from the left side. Uh, Alec Bohm has, like, legit 70 raw. Oh, yeah, he absolutely does. I've never seen him get into it in games, I know. but he uh, does. Uh, Sam Huff, uh, the same... Yeah, that 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 does. I just, it. Game yeah, game. I just, man, I liked it a lot. It's there's some length there, just because he's six foot four, but it's not like super long. Just I cannot think of a single catcher built like that. And I know, like the receiving's improving, and the 
the arm is obviously a weapon. Dude's got to be like 6'5", 250. Like, he is a big dude. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I just don't know if that can squat behind home plate for 100 t- games a year. All the guys you think of as, like, big burly catchers aren't yeah. actually that tall. Like, Stephen Volt's, like, that size. And yeah. He's not that tall. Right. And, like, Evan Gaddis is almost that size, but Evan Gaddis, like, couldn't stay behind the plate, like, physically. Is that maybe the comp here, is Evan Gaddis? Yeah, I could see that, actually. That's not a, it's not a terrible comp. Yeah. Um, other than sort of the general unusualness of Devin Gaddis' profile, making it difficult to comp generally. Right, but it's like the big raw power. Yeah. Don't know if the hit... You know, Devin Gaddis had a real good arm, too. That was mm-hmm. one of the reasons try, teams kept trying to force the issue. I would say the guy that impressed most relative to my expectations, which certainly were not low because of the staff reports we have on this year, is Luis Patino. Yeah. It was extremely good and part of it's just he got like a longer showcase he pitched multiple innings he threw like 25 pitches like Dustin May was cool when he threw eight pitches like right. great nice to see but yeah but Patino it was just in short bursts it was like he was like sit 96 98 with movement the slider looked like it was a seven he flashed a pretty good change and like guys just couldn't hit him what did you think about him versus Davey? Because they were grouped together in the 50. They're kind of similar profiles. And they both pitched in that uh, game, too. Yeah, I mean... Patino was more impressive, but I've like, I've seen Davey better than that, certainly. He didn't really... He was like trying to throw all four pitches in the one inning. Yeah. So he didn't throw the curve a ton. He threw a couple. One was good, one wasn't. Um, you know, it's like a very... Like Pedro delivery, of course. Um, yeah, he wears uh, number forty-five too. So. Um, I wouldn't want to make any any broad proclamations uh, about them off that look. I will say Patino's stuff just popped a little more in the one inning. Yeah. One plus in that case. Uh, Sixto was a lot of fun. I haven't seen him in a while, so that's always good. He was pitching with like seven gold chains, and you know, he was like the full Pedro dreads. It's just different stages of Pedro throughout the game, really. I saw our uh, good friend uh, Chris Blessing was at his start tonight. Yeah. Was uh, tweeting some video from it, and uh, Keenan was at his start, his previous start. Yeah, and it's he, like, he didn't seen him a lot this year, which is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, because Keenan's in Jackson. Jacksonville. Yeah. Um, so. um, I mean, the six star Joe Adele was just like, this is. Why I drove eight and a half hours because you can't get like the way I described it in the article is just here's my best shit against your best shit. Uh, so I knew that six had gained some weight and was yeah, now he's a a filled, a lo- he's his, was a filled out boy now. Yeah. Uh, but even still, it was it was interesting to see him. That now I saw some people were concerned about that. It's he not needed to, yeah, he yeah. needed to add that weight. That was that was weight that he needed to. If he goes off and adds another forty pounds, maybe we're a little concerned at that point. But he needed to add that weight. Uh, you know, it might hurt his athleticism coming off the mound a little bit, but he was still built like a shortstop, which was problem, which was going to be a problem at some point. Uh, any anybody else you'd like to mention? 
Alec Thomas looked really good. Like a very yeah. nice VP. It's like just very quick twitch, latent raw power. Like it's sort of the like he's not there yet, but you can totally see it being there in a year. Yeah, he's like the kind of guy that like makes the bottom of the one oh one. Yeah. I don't know if he's going to or not. That's, you know, months months and a lot of discussion down the road, but that's kind of the guy we end up putting at the bottom of the 101 a lot. Uh, Miguel Amaya took a really good BP this year, which kind of surprised me. That's an interesting. I've never known exactly what to do with him, partially because he's a catcher, partially because there's some other, like, weird things in the profile. There's no real, like, standout tool there. Um... Uh, who else? If you have my notes right here, I should just look at them. That that was attempting to pull your notes up, but I yeah. needed to. But I mean, find... like I have like my raw notes here. Oh, I was uh, I was attempting to pull your. Uh... Uh, Dio Hall looked pretty good. Um, uh, that's an interesting. Because uh... I had gotten not great reports from him, and granted, it was basically like. Again, he's like kind of a lowish arm slot guy that popped like two pitches, so it might just be a reliever anyway, but the stuff was a little livelier than I thought it was. Uh, I like Keyboom a lot, um, and Spring wrote more extensively about him and her article. Uh, Brady Singer, I also mentioned. Um, just as sort of like a better than the sum of his parts kind of guy. Oh, he's another guy with that arm slot. I don't know if he's actually a starter long term. What do you think of Taylor Trammell? Because he had a very exciting game. He did. He was also a contentious ranking. I thought it was very similar to last year. Uh, The body's still really good. The raw power didn't flash as much in BP as it did last year. Um, He's under, from what I understand, he's undergoing some swing changes right now like they're they're playing around with his uh swing plane and his base uh which might explain some of his struggles this year as well um you know wink wrote this week sort of about that class of prep outfielders and pointed out that mickey moniak is out hitting taylor trammell and i forget to the other one he uh mentioned alex kirilloff who's not even really an outfielder anymore but uh, and just sort of the, the nature of that beast and development not necessarily being linear. Um, yeah, I think in the end we probably have him ranked right until he gets his swing fix. This is also sort of like, I can compare this to Royce Lewis too. Yeah. Um, where you the, you know, the underlying athleticism and the tools are there for it to work, but it's not working right now. And that's the thing you have to consider. Yeah, I just... He's a tough one. Oh, like all that entire group is. Yeah. We will know where to rank Royce Lewis in the offseason, but I don't know where to rank him right now because he's either going to not make any adjustments and continue looking like this player and continue to be a substantially below average player in the Florida State League, in which case it becomes pretty easy to rank him or he's going to start making adjustments. We're going to get better reports on, um, you know, we're going to see him because we have pretty good coverage in the West side of Florida. Yeah. So 
like Kim, Forrest Whitley, Taylor Trammell, like these guys become easier to rank in the offseason. It's also much easier. We had a conversation in Slack about this today internally. That's just like it's much easier to run this stuff down in the offseason when you're not having to deal with like coaches and scouts being busy all the time sure. in front office people. Like, you know, we're, we're putting together a midseason list and like, you know, we still talk to people and we still talk to a lot of the same people that we talked to after the season. But like the bandwidth to get this stuff answered is usually a lot lesser at this point in the season than it is in like November when people aren't out on the road and people aren't focused on the trade deadline and signing draft picks and shit like that. So it just kind of mechanically becomes a little bit easier to find out, you know, to go find out, Hey, what's wrong with Royce list. And for like two or three guys, it's not that, you know, we got a lot, we talked to a lot of people in Royce Lewis and we talked to a bunch of people in Forest Whitley, but like for like the like a bunch, like every one on one candidate, it would be tougher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, I mean, that's also kind of the base reason that we don't include draftees because it just, it's way easier to find the information about these guys later on. Uh, and the information's more concrete and clear in many cases. We also, we missed the July 2 IFA period during our... Yeah, Do you have anything you'd like to say about the J2 signing? <laughs> uh, I honestly even couldn't tell you who the Mets signed. So... And beyond that, I probably shouldn't say anything. So... Yeah, I've, I've said some things on the social media platforms. Let's just move on to some Facebook questions. Do you want to do that before or after yeah, we talk no, about the wrestling, the wrestling segment comes last, so. Yeah. I will say that I can sit. There was one flight that would have gotten me from Dallas to Cleveland in time for the Futures game. It may not have gotten me there in time for BP. And had the flight been delayed, which it probably would have been, given the weather around the country, I wouldn't have gotten there anyway. Right. I did consider it. I talked to several people, and it was just like, you really don't need to do that. Like, it's a seven-inning showcase in the batting practice, and we're going to have four people there. We have a question from Sean. When you see Lugo this nasty after getting all that rest, you got to wonder why he isn't a starter on regular rest, No. Or the Mets have tried to not keep him on regular rest this week as well. So we've been pretty adamant about the fact that we would like to see Lugo get a opportunity in the starting rotation for what <laughs> two and a half years now. Yeah, and you talk about sort of filling those rotation spots, you know, two to three rotation spots we discussed in the first half of the show. Yeah, maybe you just bump Seth Lugo. Yeah. So all those teams that were that were rumored to be interested in him last offseason, like all wanted to start him. Yeah, not the Mets. And that doesn't that doesn't mean that you have to. And we didn't talk about the Mickey Callaway quote with Zach Wheeler, but this is a good spot to drop it in. The Mickey Callaway quote that if you can't take the ball every five days and throw a gazillion pitches, 
paraphrasing a bit, mm-hmm. that you can't be a starter in the major leagues. And that's uh, just like the, patently not true anymore. The progressive pitching coach the Mets hired from the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. So something that I did on my trip, which I will only talk about in this context, and you can take whatever you want out of that. I did read the MVP machine. Mm-hmm. And the point which is relevant to this part of this podcast in particular is that Mickey Calloway is one of the antagonists of the MVP machine. Yeah. Um, he, only, he only appears in one chapter, but... Uh, the protagonist of the MVP machine, who I do not want to discuss on this podcast, um, was not a fan of Mickey Calloway. Hmm. Had some choice words. For literally everybody in the universe, and we do not endorse or condone the views of Mr. Tyler Bauer. Uh, from John, question for the pod, what we consider a good return for trading Zach Wheeler? Uh, this came in before his shoulder impingement, to be clear. I mean, so I was hoping for, you know, maybe like a one-on-one consideration kind of guy. Sure. I yeah. did not think they were going to get one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Franklin Colome kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Which is sure. not an entirely dissimilar situation, not making that much money. So the fact that they're dumping all the money isn't that big of a deal. You know, might be a guy that one particular team likes a lot more. You might get a prospect that's like a little bit out of favor. And now I think they're going to get fuck all. Sure. If he comes back and makes a healthy start. Yeah, maybe. But they're also not, they're going to trade for a double A reliever, is the problem. They're not going to trade for the $400,000 IFA that's playing in the GCL. But that double A reliever is your boy, James Karinchak, who's now back with uh, Cleveland. They're not getting James <laughs> Karinchak for an injured Zach Wheeler. That's I like that he came back from his hamstring injury, one inning pitched, three strikeouts. Right. Yeah, I would assume he's probably going to be up pretty soon. It's just comical. Dude has faced 51 batters this year and struck out 35 of them. Yeah. Has not allowed a run. Right, and it's an eight fastball and a seven breaking wall, too. This isn't like the, you know, the Colin Poche repertoire. He's he's got some good stuff, too, but it's not that stuff. I mean, it's, you know, he's he's 98 with double-plus breaking wall. Would you, uh, I mean, this is, I don't even know why I'm asking this question, so I will phrase it differently. Uh, you would not qualify Zach Wheeler in the offseason. I think there's a decent chance of that, though. That was not the question I asked. Or there, there was already a leak to that effect today by Andy Martino of Mets blog. They can't. Like, one year, 19 million. They sure can. All right, I'm they absolutely can. They love the one year overpay to keep the books clean. But here's the thing they're already, let me look at Cots. Between arbitration raises and contractual raises, because they backloaded both the DeGrom and Familia deals, even with the money coming off the books, they're already payroll neutral going into 2020. Sure. I think they're going to make a devastating salary dump at some point. Like, There's nobody to salary dump, though. Wilson Ramos. Yeah, that's literally... $9.25 million. Like, that's just not... Yeah, if Justin Wilson comes back and pitches well, they might be able to salary dump him. Right, but that, that, there you've almost got your money. There and Wheeler's current deal, and you've got your Wheeler money. 
they're literally going from so DeGrom's going from nine and a half million to twenty five and a half million. Uh Jed Lowry gets an additional three million. So another reason you might qualify Wheeler is you qualify Wheeler, he realizes his market's gonna be terrible and you get your, you know, backloaded three and forty or whatever. Yeah. Uh Familia's getting another five million, like where do they J.D. Davis just had a very yeah, outfield trip. I mean, he caught the ball, so it wasn't that bad. But So, per Cots, they are projected... They're at $158 million this year on opening day. They're projected for 127 next year before any arm raises. Right. And they're going to have right. lunch. Yeah, but you've already said you don't think no center cards on the team. So mm-hmm. I mean, you still got Conforto. you still got Mats. Uh, you've got Diaz hitting ARB. Uh, Lugo and Nimmo hitting ARB. So... What would you put the percentage chance? Because I've seen people not in the Mets sphere. I, I know Aaron Gleeman did a thing where he suggested that the Twins go after this player, and I've seen other teams, you know, bloggers, beat types suggest that. What do you think the percentage chance that they flip Diaz at the deadline is? I don't think so. So you're saying zero? I won't say zero, but I think it's under five. I was going to say five. Meanwhile, Robinson Cano just made a very Robinson Cano play. Yeah. I I could see him doing it to try I and mean, flip the narrative. Like, I could see... They're not going to get the return now because he's pitching to a five ERA. I don't think they're going to beat Dunn and Kelnick the Dunn and Kelnick of now, well, specifically the Kelnick of now, because as you noted in your futures notes, Justin Dunn looks pretty much like Justin Dunn. Uh, I don't know if they're going to get a prospect the level of Kelnick now, but they might get a prospect the level Kelnick was at the time of the trade. Ah, I actually think they probably would. The equivalent here is like... One of the guys in the back of our 50... Like Kirillov and, and Bazlovich or something. Kirillov and Gratterall, maybe. Gratterall feels like too much, even if he's hurt, but yeah. 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 Maybe they trade him. <laughs> They're not going to actually trade him back to the Mariners, no. but the joke is that you trade him back to the Mariners, but you get Julio Rodriguez back instead of. Yeah. <laughs> you get like Julio Rodriguez and Eric Swanson instead of Kellick and Dunn. David has. I, this- Spicy question. Go ahead. I, I still think, you know, everybody's calling that trade. And, you know, Kelnick has somewhat struggled. He's hurt again, too. Yeah, Kelnick has somewhat struggled in high A and just won the IL again. So, like, if Kelnick hits his 50, 50th percentile outcome from here, the Mets are fucked. Yeah. But if he hits his 30th, they're not. So, like, this that they this trade still can work out okay on him. That Seven isn't a, fucking years of control left on Cano and Diaz. Right. That. Uh, so we're talking from an outcome. Have we learned nothing from the years of Kyle Schwarber, Michael Conforto debates? Yeah. So we're talking from a one article that I've never actually finished was I wanted to do a timeline of that. Yes. Now it's no longer relevant, but I actually have a timeline of that mostly finished in my drafts. Uh, yeah. They, you could say what you will about the process, but people talk about the outcome like it's a guaranteed like huge loss for the Mets. Twitter doesn't understand object permanence. It's moved from like you know it's down to like a thirty five percent chance of the Mets winning the trade. It's not zero. Yeah. So, 
David has a spicy question for the pod. At this point, who do you take to start your team, Alonzo or Vlad Jr.? It's spicy. Number one, Pete Alonzo, Stan, Jarrett Seidler, your thoughts? I think you still got to take Vlad. I think you still got to take Vlad. You don't sound very confident. So my inclination in these is to always take the better major league player, right? Yes. But man, it's like four years of age. Yeah. If we're considering years of control, it's a year of control. Um, man, I've just seen... I came pretty close to arguing Vlad as an eight eight this past offseason. It's not like he you know, it's not like he's done a lot to dissuade you know. The home run derby show did not particularly dissuade me from the opinion that he's eventually gonna hit forty home runs in the major leagues. Right. And I you know, I've watched some of him in the and the swing in games is still not dissuading me from the idea that he's probably going to win a batting title or two before this is all out. So the answer is Vlad, but it's an interesting philosophical question about the present versus the future. Right. Because I think Alonzo's 50th percentile outcome is now higher hmm. because he's already there. Maybe not 50th, maybe 40th. Sure. But it's like the range of outcomes here is weird. We talk a lot about we're ranking players at different points in their career, and they're at different points in their career right now. Alonzo is functionally already in his prime, mm-hmm. whereas Guerrero is still a bucket of great potential. Does it always hit? Has there been, you know, Jerkson Profar was probably about this good of a prospect and didn't really hit. Uh, That was injuries, though. Injuries happen, though, right? You know, how many true eights have missed? And I think Vlad was just a pretty true eight. Like, you know, as true of an eight as we've seen since we've been doing this. Uh, Hitters, I want to... I want to mention, you know, Matt Wieters. Matt Wieters was a catcher. Catchers are a little bit different when talking about this. You know, we talked about Jason Hayward. Did Jason Hayward miss? Jason Hayward was this level of prospect. Jason was Hayward. He? Had, yeah, probably. Hang on. Probably. I don't think that's true. If you want a guy. To look at to say yeah, how did this go fair. south? He was that last year. He was number one at BA and number two with us. So Tom Brown is actually the guy. <laughs> where he was probably an eight. Tom Brown, like not everybody's an eight just because they're ranked highly, man. You can't just like point at every good prospect I, and say I, they're I, eight. There were definitely people that were throwing an eight on Tom Brown. Um, you know who's actually the the one that I think pretty much everybody would have aided at the time, and uh, I can the jury's kind of still out. Byron Buxton. Yeah, again, injuries to a certain extent, but 
Right, and again, Byron Buxton's a good major league player. Right. Right. So the chance the chance that Vlad is ever as good as Pete Alonso is right now is around fifty percent one way or the other, right? Yeah. So it makes it an interesting question. Vlad has a chance to be an absolute superstar in a way that I don't think Alonso does because I don't think Alonso is I don't think Alonso's ever hitting like three thirty or anything like that. Right. If he does, he wins the MVP because it's probably like three thirty with like sixty home runs. Because <laughs> if he makes if he makes enough solid contact to hit three thirty, there's a lot of baseballs flying out. Yeah. And that's not to say that he can't have a season where he does that. I'm I'm saying the likelihood that he has a season like that isn't fantastically high. And Guerrero could have seasons like that. Like if you if you came back and told me that, you know, Guerrero ripped off like three straight, like, you know, three thirty with forty home runs, a bunch of walks and doubles, you know, I I would say, Yeah, it seems right, it seems right. And if you told me that Alonzo did that, I would be like, Yeah, he's not gonna hit that much. So the answer is still Vlad, but it's close and it's kind of a weird, a weird discussion. Um, I guess we can plug somebody else's stuff. Kylie McDaniel is doing his trade value stuff at Fangraphs this week, which is an attempt to answer that question. And I have been, I didn't, I, I'm not closely reading these articles, but I have been looking at them because they're kind of interesting. And Alonzo was, I think, in the 20s or 30s, as was McNeil. And Vlad has not shown up yet, which presumably means he's in the top 10. Mm-hmm. It's either in the top 10 or he wasn't on the list or an honorable mention, and that doesn't seem right either. Because they liked them almost as much as we did, maybe as much as we did. And you really don't change your opinion on a guy like that because he's only been a league average hitter in his first 200 at-bats at 20 years old. We also have a question from Andy. Question for the pod. What does Luis Rojas's position of quality control coach entail? Do other teams have this type of position in their organizations also? I, I mean, interviewed with a, for a quality control job in the NFL in 2005. True <laughs> um, story, actually. It's technically an internship. Of course it was. Um, I mean, generally speaking, and this can be a lot of teams do have this. Uh, not every org has them in uniform. Yeah, but they're generally the bridge between the analytics and the players and the field staff. A lot of video work. Yeah. Sometimes it's literally one of the guys in the video room. Yeah. Although Rojas is not. To my knowledge, yeah, it's their job to communicate. You know, it's strategy. Strategy. It's kind of like a advanced scouting position in a way, although there's actually very little advanced scouting involved or communication of advanced scouting involved. Um, you know, it's stuff like this pitcher. You know, it's like this pitcher has this heat map or tends to throw these pitches in this count and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um... I know Rojas specifically does uh, like the defensive alignment type stuff, like yeah. the yeah has that kind of stuff. Um, when they hired him, mm-hmm. 
they basically said he was replacing TJ because TJ was kind of like the traveling. Yeah. I'll go back to the MVP machine a little bit. The MVP machine describes these players as, or excuse me, these, uh, these staff members as conduits. That's like the term they use for this. You know, so TJ was the conduit for analytics with the team and uh, Rojas is, was described at that at the time of his hiring as well, which again makes sense. Uh, a lot of teams have specifically wanted to try and get guys with player cred in that role. And right. Rojas managed a lot of these guys in the minors and he's Felipe Alves' son, which everybody yes. forgets. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he was the manager in Bingo, and before that he was the manager in Savannah, and before that he was the manager in see the GCL manager, I think, I think before that. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. But he's worked with these guys a lot, you know, the younger players in the system, and he's been around a lot. So that's kind of the guy you would want in that role, you know. That's like the Sam Fold role or the Brian Bannister role. John Baker. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. From Nick Q for the P, since we have nothing else to look forward to, including the trade deadline apparently, what would you say the odds are we see Tebow in September? It's probably damn close to 100% in March, but it can't still be a near foregone conclusion, right? So, one issue. If they call him up now, it's going to seem so incredibly opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Like, and, like, they care about the back page. And they're just going killed by the back pages. They're going to get killed by Francesa. Like, they're just going to get killed. The last 28 days, 216, 273, 451. It's been bad. It's not been great. Yeah. And I've gotten reports on him, and they're not good. Like, the reports on him last year were fine. I saw him. It was fine. It was, like, okay double-A outfielder. Sure. Well, the out, not really the outfielder part, but it was, like, okay. Like, like you see, like, groove bat, medium-slow bat speed, raw power double-A outfielder all the time. And it wasn't, it wasn't out of place. The reports in AAA are this is horribly out of place. He's awful. Yeah, I mean, again, it's another year. He's 31 now. He had the hamate issue. Yeah. It, it's 65%. And they're still caught him up is the thing. Yeah, 65%. This is is the end game. This was the whole point. I mean, if he hadn't gotten injured last year, he would have been up then. And they kind of could have finessed it enough that... That's his agent, is the GM. Yeah, yeah, there's also that. That's his lifelong dream to play in the major leagues. It'll it'll cheese a couple of gates. If they don't do it this year, they can't do it next year because of the new uh, September roster rules. Right, they're going to have functionally open 40-man spots. Listen, they haven't even bothered to put Brandon Nimmo on the 60-day DL yeah. like, because they just haven't needed to. Like, yeah, it's... You know, they're going to play it off, you know. We, we're... 
they might even be open about the fact that, like, you know, he's retiring at the end of the season. He's worked really hard. He's set a really good example for our younger players. Yeah, they can do that. You know, I mean, we think we think this is the right thing to do. You know, he's not going to play much. You know, maybe he'll get one start. They'll tell you well in advance when the start well, is. I'm sure they will. It'll be a <laughs> Saturday, Saturday night home game. Yeah, yeah Saturday night home game. Because <laughs> it's not going to be Sunday because you don't want to lose the church crowd. It's going right. to be Saturday night. Oh. It'll be against the non contender, so they're not accused of like fucking up the pennant race. Let's, let's find the exact game, shall we, Jarrett? <laughs> uh, it's going to be a home game. It's definitely going to be a home game. Well, yes. <laughs> Yeah, you might think we're overly cynical about this, but <laughs> you think? <laughs> uh, ooh, there's really not. So their home Saturday games are. And the Phillies might be out of it by then. Yeah, I guess that's true. But their only home Saturday the games are like... far enough ahead that it won't matter. Yeah. There's also every chance, like, the Braves have, like, like the game doesn't matter to them by that point. Yeah. They could always just play them and not care. Yeah, they could do that, too. Um, they could pick a weekday game. They could pick one of those Marlins weekday games and try and juice a weekday game, weeknight game. Yeah. That's, that's within their... I could see it like they try and line it up for the Braves, but if they can't line it up for the Braves, they line it up for the Marlins or the Dodgers. And like I could see shenanigans here. I'm looking. By the way, I'm looking at the dynamic ticket pricing. Yeah. I was. This is. I, I don't complain about this stuff a lot, but mm-hmm. I was. I was bothered as a plan holder about that eighty percent ticket gimmick they did because right, that right. completely undercut the value of tickets for the rest of the season. Yeah. And they did not offer any kind of benefit to the plan holders or they were basically completely undercutting and screwing over. And, you know, if you did the calculations, essentially those tickets were being sold for 25% of the value of the plan holder you know, what the plan holders or the season ticket holders originally paid. And that's, you know, you run sales and you, you know, the StubHub prices have fallen through the floor as they tend to always do around this time of year because the butts suck. But, like, you're, you know as a ticket holder that that's a possibility the team undercutting it with an 80 percent sale is not something that happens right and that that just that that struck me as a little bit you know was, that struck me as cynical by the team frankly that's your correspondence we can now move on to Jarrett's trip and the wrestling portion of the show yeah, so I went to Dallas for the G1 Climax opening night. It was really cool. I got to see an Okada and Tanahashi match live. Have you watched any of the wrestling of the last few weeks? I'm guessing the answer is no. The answer right. is no, because I have been traveling and had dodgy Wi-Fi. Yeah, so uh, 
You should you should seriously go back and watch the Kenny Omega. I mean, I'm Shima. going to go watch Shima and Omega. Yeah, right, that was wasn't like a match of the year candidate, but it was close. It was like you could imagine two different Kenny Omega Shima matches in 2019. It was the good one because there was yeah. also a bad one too. Yeah. It was in play. <laughs> it's definitely a bad one that was in play. I also went to Extreme Rules. Oh, that's oh. right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you were there. Oh. You were there for the Brock Lesnar cash in. Yes. Seth Rollins loses the title by being a wife guy, basically. <laughs> the Boy, man's that, man. Oh. I saw somebody like purchasing one of those t-shirts and putting them on and I really felt bad for that guy in that moment. Anyway. Uh so this kind of all ties in, because I have been to a lot of really good, really exciting, really crowd-enthusiastic wrestling shows since I was last at a WWE show, which would have been the SmackDown after WrestleMania. Sure. It's just, like, really stark just how, like, joyless and lifeless the WWE product is. And this was even, like, a fairly good WWE pay-per-view, but it's just, like... It's overpackaged, it's overproduced, it's impossible to care about anything that happens. And the wrestling's, like, not that good. Like, it's good. Ricochet and AJ Styles went out there and they had a good raw main event, right? Mm -hmm. If Ricochet and AJ Styles were having a G1 match, it would have been the match of the year. Sure. But they're not allowed to. Because they have to wrestle in WWE house style. And just like... There's WWE house style matches that are fucking phenomenal. AJ Styles has had some of them. Ricochet hasn't. Ricochet's never going to be great at that style. It's just like it's like one guy, you know, they... The babyface has a shine segment at the beginning. The heel cuts him off through dastardly cheating tactics. The heel beats him down forever. The babyface does his five-move comeback, and they go to the finish. It's like every match, except not all of them, but every match except for the gimmick matches of the match. It's like... I've seen too much really good wrestling... Yeah, like I saw an Okada-Tanahashi match. Was it the best Okada-Tanahashi match? No. Was it even the eighth best Okada-Tanahashi match? No. Was it, like, ten times better than anything on Extreme Rules? Yeah. Was there anything on Extreme Rules that was remotely as good as the Cody Rhodes-Dustin Rhodes match in Las Vegas? No. Was there anything on Extreme Rules that was as good as the Nick Gage Joey Janela match at Asbury a few months ago. No. Was there anything on Extreme Rules as good as the Joey Janela Tony Deppin match in Philly a couple of months? No. <laughs> like, and there was good wrestling, but like, there's good wrestling everywhere. And there was also some bad shit on that show. Like, Seth Rollins losing his title by being a wife guy. Why are you supposed to cheer for the Seth Rollins character right now? Because he's the uh, corporate-appointed babyface. All he does is whine. (laughs) 
He's never been a good babyface character, generally. His girlfriend's like a million times cooler than he is. Which is not a... It's bad. And they also have, like, crappy on-screen chemistry. And I'm sure it's not that they have crappy chemistry. It's that every time they're on-screen together, they're putting these horrible scripted skits. But, like... This guy's supposed to be the top face in the company. Mm. Right. And his, you know, he's a whiny heel. That's, yeah. that, that's, that's not been uncommon for baby faces they've tried to push in the last 10 years either, but. Right. It's just like, it's not a likable character. His matches, you know, we discussed this when we talked about the feud with him and Osprey on Twitter. I actually forgot the AJ Styles match when we did that. He had a really good match against AJ Styles, but his matches are, like, good, but he's not tearing the house down. You know, Becky Lynch and Seth Rollins versus Baron Corbin and Lacey Evans was probably <laughs> the best match of Baron Corbin's career, which made it, like, you know, yeah. a courtesy three stars. Again, not exactly putting them in a position to um, right. tear the house down either. Was the Brock cash in a nice moment? Yeah, yeah, but you just put your title back on Brock again. Yeah. Which, again, I like Brock. I don't begrudge Brock the fact that he's making $10 million to do nothing, but you keep paying him $10 million to ruin your fucking product. Yeah. Because that's what he's doing at this point. You can't have the guy do the same thing for, like, what is it, seven and a half years now? He came back after Mania in 2012, so it's seven and a half years. And there's been... this Basically, the entire time he's been playing the heel monster character, even though what his heat's sort of been blown off like eight different times already. And it's just, it's a very tired character. All the faces do is complain that he's never around, which highlights the fact that he's never around like they again they set that character up to fail and they either need to do something else with it or move on so he just comes in and he casually squashes what's supposed to be your top face in 15 seconds because the top face is more worried about his girlfriend than the title and now he'll disappear for a month right was there any follow-up to the top face being worried about his girlfriend? No, she was on TV building her next match the next day. <sighs> Compare that to, you know, G1, and it's like, you know, the four tag matches on the undercard were all pretty quick, high-paced, good stuff. And then you got into the main card, and, you know, I thought Lance Archer and Will Ospreay was one of the best matches of the year. I think it was a better match live. Ospreay almost killed me taking the chokeslam. He got chokeslammed into a table right in front of me, and, like, you know, thank God the man has very good body control. That's all I'm going to say. You can see that on Twitter at various points. But, you know, that was, that, was, that was the best match of Lance Archer's career by, like, a million miles. It was way better than their match in the New Japan Cup, which was previously the best match of Lance Archer's career. But it's like, they, WWE has a single guy who's 
60% as good as Will Ospreay right now. And then you just, like, run through the card. Yeah, I, I went and took a piss during Fale and uh, Evil and came back, and they were having exactly the match I expected and had our ref bump and gimmicks, and it was, like, eight minutes, and it was okay. But you get into, like, you know, Zack Sabre and Sonata was phenomenal. Kota Ibushi and Kenta, I thought live was phenomenal. I know it didn't come across as well on TV, apparently. And it was also, like, a little weird. I mean, it wasn't a squash, but Kenta took, like, 80% of the match and then beat him with a move, which is not a match you see a lot, especially in America. But, you know, Kenta's coming off five years in WWE where he was a glorified job guy, and they want to make him a top guy, so he's got to beat a top star, take the entire match, and beat him with his move. And in the next match back in Japan, they had him do the same thing with Tanahashi. And then, you know, the Okada-Tanahashi match, was it the best match I've ever seen live? No, but, you know, I think the best match I've ever seen live is still the Gargano-Walmas match from Philly. Mm -hmm. And we sort of described that as a good G1 match. Right, like the absolute... Like, yeah, like the G1 yeah. block final or whatever. Yeah. Right, like that, you know. Was it as good as that? No. Was it in the top five? Probably. How much of that was being live? Because the atmosphere for that match was just absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, a lot of it, but they also had the Rokata-Tanahashi match. They went 23 minutes instead of 36, but... The part they cut out was like the legwork at the beginning, for the most part. So not it was the it was the Reader's Digest Okada Tanahai. But even doing the Reader's Digest, the greatest hits, they still had like one spot that was not in any of the previous matches. They had a fantastic small package uh, near fall, but it was being built to in all of the previous matches. You know, like everything. And that's another match where, you know, I've been following this product during the entirety of that feud. So I've seen every single one of those matches, you know, all 14 previous Okada Tanahashi matches or whatever the number is. And I think a lot of people that were watching had maybe only seen one or two of the matches from last year or maybe were sampling it from the first time. And they wrestle a very psychologically heavy style that has callbacks to their 9,000 previous matches. But, you know, that was just an absolutely phenomenal wrestling match, and it was like this phenomenally joyful moment for the entire crowd that was there. And then you go to a WWE show, and it's just like, this is like a fucking slog. So, uh, I, you know, I might not go to another WWE event between now and next year's Mania, because I always enjoy Mania. Mania's always, Mania's got like a, you know, at least you got like the staging and the entrances and... You know, it's 26 hours long, too. But it's also, like, the end point with a lot of blow-offs to stuff. But just, like, the idea of, like, going to a WWB pay-per-view or TV taping right now, like, just couldn't appeal to me less. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there was the uh, AEW show this past week that was the weakest of the shows they've run so far, but it kind of set up all the stuff for All Out. Did you uh, watch the uh, 
all out promo. I have not yet. No. The Hangman Page promo is really good. I've heard very good things about the Hangman Page promo. And Hangman, Hangman's been kind of flat the last couple of shows, so they kind of need to... I'm guessing in that building against Chris Jericho, the crowd's still going to be crazy behind him. Yeah. So it probably won't end up mattering. But that's setting up a killer card, that all-out show. Hangman yep. and Jericho for the title. Uh, Moxley and Omega... Moxley's been doing some interesting stuff in G1. Uh, it's actually having the big match against Ishii tonight, I think. This morning, tomorrow morning. Uh, you know, it's Lucha Brothers and the Young Bucks in a ladder match. God, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're off Cody and Sean Spears, which doesn't sound like fantastically appealing on paper. But Cody's record when he does like these heavy story matches that don't seem like they're going to be very good is actually like those are actually end up being his best matches over like, you know, the flashy matches with like Omega or Bushi or Juice Robinson or somebody like that. Like he, you know, his grasp of wrestling is best in the psychological field. Not like the moves, 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 moves. Like when he, you know, when he really gets in there with the heavy story, it'd be a real good match. I guess you're kind of the best friends and the Dark Order. <laughs> the, the Dark Order has not been clicking for, there have been aspects of AEW that have not been clicking for me. And that's one of them. Uh, yeah, it's just weird. And like, I remember the, Super Smash Bros. from like Dragon Gate USA back in the day, and while it wasn't, you know, the most, I guess, maybe universal gimmick, I think actually would have played really well in AEW. I'm sure they probably can't do all that shit for copyright reasons. Yeah. But I mean, like, rematching yeah. of like a dark heel tag team, I don't know if that's gonna work yeah I wouldn't be surprised if that match ends up being on the pre-show or you know that hasn't been working the librarian stuff hasn't been working the women's division stuff has been very hit or miss they're gonna get a lot of a lot of rope I think uh, to correct those kinds of things but I again, I still don't know what that television product looks like. Yeah, we're only what eight weeks away from finding out thereabouts. Yeah, it's probably. It sounds like first week of October on the first Wednesday in October. Mm-hmm. That's kind of when we're aiming for. That's not officially announced yet. Now two hours, but what does a two-hour? what does two hours of this look like? And there mm. were some signs to be concerned on that Jacksonville show. You know, they had a hangman Kip Sabian match that went 19 minutes and frankly wasn't very good. Mm. Um, and if you're booking a hangman match leading into his big title shot, why is he going 19 minutes with, you know, frankly, a guy nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. Like, shouldn't he just be beating Kip Sabian in six minutes with his move instead of having a back and forth match and 
unable to put him away. You're getting to the post-match angles with that anyway, so. Right. And again, I'm, you know, the crowd still might be behind Hangman and the building in Chicago, and I'm sure they're going to do a real good job building that up. Who do you think's winning that match? I think it has to be Jericho. I think it has to be Hangman. Yeah, I don't think you can go into national TV with him as the champ yet. I think you can get him close. You could even do... so. I don't do know. you really want a 48-year-old WWE guy that's been on national TV cons- pretty much the entire time since 1996? Yeah, but it's a different character is the thing. Like, he's so good at reinventing himself. Like, I think you want to start with a face chasing a heel. I still think you need that basic structure. So what? It's Omega chasing Jericho? Is that where we're... Probably, yeah. I just... I don't... I don't know if Jericho is the right choice. So my assumption is that the reason that they're not immediately putting the title on Omega is because putting, there were a lot of, to whether these were false concerns or not false concerns, but like the idea that this was just going to be a vehicle put office over. Right. And, you know, Hangman and Jericho are not strictly speaking office, even though they're, you know, pretty close. But I just, maybe Jericho's the right guy. I don't know. I've just like, I've seen Jericho as the, you know, no country for old men heel Nick Bockwinkel champion is something that WWE did already. That is a rehash of a WWE product. Now, it was it was a long time ago, and I'm not sure how many people that are going to be watching AEW in 2019 were really hardcore WWE fans in what year was that? 2008, I think. But I don't know. I don't know how... I don't know how hot any of Jericho's issues are going to be. Is Jericho Omega-3 a real hot match? Is Jericho Moxley? Jericho and Dean Ambrose had a terrible feud in WWE, and it wasn't that long ago. I mean, do you put it on Hangman for the pop in the building and then transfer it to Moxley quickly? Right. And also, like... So this is the this is a weird argument. What the hell? This was the Dave Meltzer argument about why Charlotte had to be in the match with Becky and Ronda. Mm-hmm. That Charlotte had to be in the match with Becky and Ronda so they could say for the next ten years that Charlotte was in the first women's main event of WrestleMania. Does Hangman have to win the title so they can say for the next ten years that he was the first AEW champion? I just think. Mm. The way they're now building that, up Jericho as this killer heel with this new move. The Judas effect. Yeah. I don't think you can like pop the top on someone even countering it yet, let alone kicking out of it. So how do you avoid sending the crowd home miserable if Jericho's just gonna beat what's gonna be like the third most popular guy on the show clean in the middle with a back elbow? I mean, do you just put Omega Moxley on last? 
I don't think they're going to do that over crowning their first champion. Sure. You better you better have a real hot angle for after that match, is all I'm saying. And they did when they put him over Omega. Right. Yeah. So they had that real hot angle. If that all, you know, if that double or nothing show had ended with Jericho back elbowing Omega and pinning him clean, people would have went, yeah, that was a pretty good, cool show. But it wasn't a hot ending to that show. They had the hot ending anyway. So do they have a hot ending? I don't know. I don't either. I wouldn't necessarily bet against them, but... Right. I, Hangman doesn't seem over enough to be carrying that title right now. Right, that's the yeah problem. Right. Which... Is we, Hangman almost seems colder than he was like at this time last year, weirdly, even though like that product is much hotter. But like the Hangman like the Hangman real overness doesn't like like Hangman was like real over coming off of G one last year. Like it seemed like he was emerging into a real big star and he's kinda of stagnated, which I think is probably that he was off for six months and New Japan and ROH basically right after that realized he was leaving and stopped pushing him very hard. Sure. And he's had, you know, you know, he was in a pre-show battle Royal and two kind of mid card matches. And then the assumption too was going into this, that he was going to lose to Pac and then Pac was going to lose in the finals. So that match wasn't originally going to be a contenders yeah. like to get in. I don't know. They might've been doing some, I, I assume that pop that hangman and Jericho was always where they were going for this first title match. Mm. So I don't know what he might've gotten bigger wins on these past two shows. Um, he might've been going over Pac. Although there were, you know, there were various kinds of rumors. McNeil just took a fucking horrible route to a fly ball. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just supposed to be Pac and Jericho? I don't know. In, in that case, I think it would have been substantially more obvious that Jericho was winning. I think Jericho's going to win, by the way. Mm-hmm. I just I don't know if it's the right call. It, just the idea of building a fresh new promotion with fresh faces around a guy that was like actually in WCW because this is getting all the obvious WCW comparisons. It's yeah. the new WCW. Like, and you're putting the title on a guy that was actually there. Like he was in WCW. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my guess is that Jericho's winning the title and ends up dropping it to Omega or Moxley next year. Yeah. Makes sense. I'm giving you the opportunity to wrap this up. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to immediately start, uh, start talking over me. I guess I'll see if Noah Syndergaard can get out of another uh, jam here. And we'll check back in next week on another edition. For all you kids out there.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.